Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and online at gtownradio.com. This is What Do You Know About That? A radio show about anything and everything happening in our community, our city, and our world. Here are your hosts, Eric Gershnow and Mary Angela Saavedra. Hello, hello. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Welcome to another episode of What Do You Know About That? Hey, Eric, how's it going? Ah, I'm doing very well, Mary Angela. Thank you for asking. How about yourself? Oh, cannot complain. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday, everyone. (laughs) Uh, What's going on today, this day in science? This day in science, September 22nd. In 2007, a study aims to track source of cosmic rays. The Pierre Auger Collaboration published findings on the origin of ultra-high-energy cosmic rays. These rays, which are known to originate outside the Milky Way, contain particles with energy equaling 8 billion volts, or more than 100 million times the force of particles, with a large, I believe it's called, is it hadron? or Hadron, H-A-D-R-O-N, Collider. I believe it's Hadron. To adequately study the cosmic rays, scientists distributed 1,600 tubs of ultra-pure water over 3,000 square kilometers in Argentina. These tubs allowed them to capture 30,000 of the ultra-high-energy waves over the course of 12 years and then locate the origin of these waves as a cluster of galaxies between 300 million and 900 million light-years away. Researchers believe further research will help them understand exactly how these cosmic rays come into existence. Good grief. (laughs) That's some, like, Boy Scout-type stuff right there. That's, wow. Um, Here, let me just get a tub of water. Yeah. And we're going to measure the distance of galaxies 90 million miles away based on the cosmic (laughs) rays that we're collecting in the water. In this tub of water. Wow. For 12 years. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, who knew? Uh, Yeah. This day in science. (laughs) That was going on. Thanks. That was... Ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-ba. So, uh, got anything on your neighborhood radar this week? Well, you know, uh, this year was the first year of the Mount Airy Porch Fest. It was. Right? So, that happened Sunday for folks who week, yeah. happen to have an ear to the ground. Um, I know it's the first year, and I think it was probably, like most things, brand new. It's It was kind of a small-scale production, but there were, at least relative to us, there was a number of clusters of, of various performances. I think primarily acoustic, we caught our friend Jared Taylor, who happened to be featured on our show, was performing um, on an individual's front porch right on the Wissahickon. Yeah. Or on on, on Wissahickon Avenue. Yeah. Yeah. So... Well, yeah, keep eyes open for that next year. It seems pretty interesting. And they, they seem pretty spread out across the neighborhood, which is exciting. And so, you know, Mount Airy borders right up against Germantown. So it wasn't a far walk for us to walk over and yeah, check out what's yeah, going exactly. on. Yeah, exactly. What's on your radar? Well, um, so a couple things have been uh, happening. Something that I found um I don't want to call it interesting because it's not. It's it's pretty traffic tragic. So there was a building collapse on Lindley Avenue, which is just kind of on the edge between Germantown and North Philadelphia. So it's toward mm-hmm. 
I guess some people would say it's North Philadelphia. Looking at the map, I'm like, that's kind of the edge of Germantown right there. But anyway, Lindley Avenue, building collapse. Not your usual like, okay, this apartment building collapsed on like lower levels. It was the upper levels of this building. So like the seventh and eighth floor. Mm-hmm. And they like bricks hit the street and like all kinds of stuff. And they still kind of don't know why it happened like what happened. So they're clearing out the building as they should, because people need to come and take a look at it. Cause it's like, okay, luckily nobody was hurt. You know, people were startled, but nothing, you know, there was some damage, but, but no one was hurt in this building collapse, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. So then it's like, let's get us all out of here before something really bad happens. But the developers response, instead of like, I don't know, putting people up and, you know, even in the not best hotel, but like giving them a space to be right. So at first they were like, find, find some place to be, but not here, like left the people on their own. Like, where am I going to go? And then they were like, okay, okay, okay. We have some other properties that, you know, have empty apartments in them. We'll start placing you around in those and mm-hmm. you can stay there. And the feed on next door is showing people who are now like, Hey, so this is where we are, and they're showing pictures of where they are, and there's some pretty rundown, really gross, like no electricity, disgusting toilets, sketchy kind of places. Yeah, and I'm just like, there should be laws. You should not be allowed to do that. Like, again, totally respect not wanting the people to stay in the building. They need to get engineers in there to look at it, to see what happened, to see if it's going to happen more. Like, Super fan of all of that. But then you have to have something, you have to be able to drop the money to either like put them up somewhere or work with like emergency services to find places for them to be. Not just like, good luck, find some place. Oh, you can't find some place. Okay, we'll put you in this dump. <laughs> like this place, it's completely barely inhabitable at this moment. Like, I get it. It costs money. But like, these are people, you know, like, imagine your home, you're in your house and all of a sudden your wall falls down. Are they still being charged rent? Gosh, I would hope not. I didn't see anything like that on here. But they, a lot of them had to, you know, leave all their things because they had nowhere to go. So they can't just like yeah. take everything with them. So a lot of their stuff is still in the apartment. Now, mind you, only the sixth and seventh floor are affected and it's only one side. So it's just a couple apartments. But it's not safe for other people to be in there to get their stuff. You know what I mean? Like it's not. Right. They needed to evacuate. That's important. So. I don't know. There just there should be laws. <laughs> there should be things in place to help people in these kind of circumstances. And it's a little bit heartbreaking. But it was nice to see on these posts, a lot of people were offering resources or ideas or have you thought about this? Have you tried that? Uh, you know, everyone is, I'm so sorry this is happening. Here's what I know about these kind of situations. Does mm-hmm. this help you at all? So definitely a good flood of community trying to come around them. And I just hope very much that... Oh, they're doing like, is there like a food drive perhaps? I didn't see that on there because everyone's so dispersed. You know, the people aren't all staying together. They're all like, like I said, the post is people that are in different, because they they even put them in different apartment buildings. Like they didn't have like one building where they could move everybody to. The developer, you know, the the landlords are basically like, well, I've got this building over here in Kensington. It's got three empty apartments. You can go over here to these three. Like these three families can go there. Okay. There's, you know, I need two other ones. I've got a building over here in this part of North Philadelphia. You can go get in there. Got it. And the buildings aren't great, which makes me think that the building they were in probably wasn't great either, especially if the seventh and sixth and seventh floor collapsed. Right. Like it's probably not a good thing. So. Anyway, there's that. Uh, it's probably an old, de- I mean, it sounds like it's an old development. 
Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I looked at the picture of the building. It looks like an older building, but it doesn't necessarily look uh. historic in any way. There's just the facade, that side with the window. Like the top floor, the seventh floor had like an ornate, like kind of, you know, like buildings do, like a facade up there with something right. that was ornate, right? That just toppled over, crumbled, took out the window and the ledge below it, knocked out part of that wall. It all fell down into the street, mm. basically leaving those two apartments exposed and wide open so that's wow. why the question is like okay old right if that's coming down what else is coming down yeah, and how safe exactly. is this building like get out right get, you can't stay in the building so get out i mean but better that they get out of the building than suffer a really big collapse then the other thing is kind of the flip side of that and this is where this <laughs> it's about community and the city i guess in theory, trying to do the right thing, trying to do a good thing, and it turning into a very bad thing. So here is the story of the Philadelphia Brewing Company. Do you know about the Philadelphia Brewing Company? They're I over know the in name. like yeah, so they're over in like Fishtown, um, edge of Kensington, that whole kind of area, and they uh, have been doing pretty well. They're you know one of those like Wissahick and Brewery here, Attic here. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely have a lot of, you know, annual brews that people look forward to. And one of the annual brews that they really, really look forward to is uh, a brew called, um, what do they call it? It's got a name. I'm so sorry. Um, Oh, the brew is called Harvest from the Hood. And the reason why they call this particular brew Harvest from the Hood is because they grow hops in an abandoned lot right next to where the brewery is. They've been doing this for years because I don't know how much you know about hops, but you have to plant them and then it takes them several years to like really grow and they get better and better and better each year. They're, you know, annuals like like that. And so you can't, if you destroy a a plot of hops, you can't just plant new hops and be like, cool, we're going to have all this. So anyway. It takes time to cultivate. It sure does. Well, here's what it says. Despite our clear signage and fenced-off area, the city of Philadelphia took it upon themselves to completely destroy our hop garden yesterday morning. As a result, we lost over 60 pounds of hops and tens of thousands of dollars in projected revenue for this year that we were supposed to be using in our beloved wet hopped IPA. They just, they leveled it. They thought it was weeds. And the thing is, is that there's no way they thought it was weeds. It was clearly marked. And the developer that owns that particular lot, they were actually renting from him. They had permission to plant there. So what the city was doing, they don't know. This post as of right now, which was posted just like three days ago, it has 245 comments on it. Wow. Some guesstimations are that maybe somebody reported it to 311 at some point and was like, these are overgrow weeds because hops get, I mean, it looks like vines, right? It looks like kudzu, right? Hops can get very okay. viney. But when you look at the lot, when you see it, first of all, there was a sign. It said very clearly what was there. Yeah. Also, the hops are planted in these little pots that go kind of all zigzag through the field. And even when hops gets woolly and wild and covers everything, right, it's still growing up the vine. It's still going on. You put the string across the top to help keep, you know, keep them vertical. You can see, you can see, I looked at the pictures. It is clearly maintained. It is clearly not weeds. And the city was like, no, we're, we're taking care of weeds. You always say we're taking care of weeds. And so that's the thing is the city is claiming like, we're just doing our job. 
we're, we're trying to clean up empty lots. We're trying to beautify the city. This was ugly. It was weeds. We came in and we took it. And they were like, it wasn't weeds. It was hop. So, I mean, what's the solution there, right? It's like you want the city to do their thing. You want the, the city to come in and actually take care of abandoned cars in the street and, you know, lots where people dump garbage and stuff like that. But then it's like, uh, there's no way. There's no way they could possibly have thought this hop garden was well, can they weeds. take recourse against the city? That's what a lot of people have said. I mean, this post. if they're legitimately renting the space yep. and they're allowed to grow on the property and there's signage. Yep. They they can. My concern is that they're going to be like, we got a report. Well, Somebody called this in. I, I guess the other question is, is there any restrictions from the city as to what you can do with a, a lot in the city? I mean, are they allowed yeah. to grow? They should be able to. It's just an empty lot. Yeah. The thing is, is that if it wasn't sort of registered that that was what was going to be going on in the lot, if the lot was just considered abandoned, even though it wasn't, even though it was actually owned by somebody, they didn't look into it. There's there's a whole lot of like, ugh, ugly red tape around this that I think is unfortunate. Well, I mean, who do you direct? I mean... They've got to sue the city. They have to. They've got to file a case well, and be like, they have to find like, out why they came out in the first place. Yeah, well, just to be like, I mean, that's revenue. That's that's a lot of revenue. That's a whole... I mean, the city wouldn't know that, right? Wouldn't know what? That it's revenue for them. Right, not if they thought it was weeds, but it but again, wasn't weeds. But again, why would they come out and chop it down in the first place? Because I can tell you there's a number of properties that right. are probably in disarray that I don't... So the they would never touch. Exactly. That's why I'm like, something's up. Something is up. Like, I don't is know that, what. Is that sort of the consensus from the comments? People yeah. suspect there was some intention behind it? Yeah. Like something. They don't know what, but they were like, something happened here. Do you here. think like maybe a competitor or something reported it? Oh. Who knows? Like, right? Like, who actually knows? That's so, pretty deep, though. I mean. It is. And it's wow. unfortunate. So if you happen to be in that area or you like beer and you want to help out a brewery who's going to be hurting in a minute, you know, feel free to stop by. But that's all I got. Wow. Uh, that's plenty. Yeah. Well. Make sure let's let's be sure to check in on that message board. You know. Oh yeah, I'll check in in a couple of weeks. See what yeah, what's see happening. where it's at. I'd be curious to know. Yeah. Because I could see that story making headlines. Mm-hmm. No doubt. No, I'm gonna keep eyes on it for sure. Wow. All right. Well, what are we talking about this week, Eric? Well, it is my turn this week to talk about the main topic. So. A few episodes back, I had talked about Alzheimer's and specifically focusing on the disease itself and it being an affliction of the brain. And I thought, well, maybe I'll take the flip side here and and talk about brain health and kind of segue into it by starting with something we can all relate with, and that is stress culture. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't need to ask you, what do you know about that? (laughs) I think everybody can appreciate a little bit of stress in their daily lives. So in doing research for this segment, it was kind of centric on brain health. And in a lot of the stuff that, that I come across, really a lot of it is derivative from stress, as we all know. So there's a mental health study done in 2018 in the U.K., 
and I'm just referencing this just to provide some kind of statistics. This is from a sample size of 4,600 people, but of that, those folks, you know, they these guys get like I guess quizzed. Um, 74% of people report they are stressed and they don't know how to cope. 46% of people report they end up eating too much due to stress. So then that ties into aspects of you know physical health. In addition to uh, a 29% reported increase in alcohol consumption and smoking, uh, I could run down a few more statistics. 50% of those people are also cited as being depressed, and 37 of those tend to express feelings of loneliness. So, as you can see, stress, which again we're all too familiar with, leads down a very dark road and oftentimes results in impacts to cognitive abilities, which is kind of the focus of what I'm going to be talking about in addition to, you know, physical health. In some of the research I was doing here, it just, you know, going down this road of, say, fast food consumption as an example of stress culture. And I've heard a couple different varying opinions. Originally, it was, well, fast food's probably more associated with poor neighborhoods. It's a reflection of socioeconomic status. People who tend to be poor, they're under a lot more stress because they're trying to figure out how to live from paycheck to paycheck. So fast food is quick. It's high calorie. But interestingly enough, it isn't so selective between socioeconomic status because, as it turns out, people who make income, I guess, 350% of what would be considered the low-end bracket, which puts, puts you at about like $120,000 a year income, which is, I guess, for most people, a considerably reasonable income, right? Uh, even those people still deal with a lot of stress and happen sure. to maintain this constant expenditure on fast food, particularly during lunchtime. Why, would you say? Because they're trying to hurry and eat so they can continue working. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right? So that they don't have to take a whole bunch of work home. So they get all their work done. And you're like, you're hustling to get it finished. So you're like, cool, I'm just going to stuff this in my face in the next 10 minutes so that I can continue to work so that I can leave work at five o'clock when I want to go. Yep. You pretty much nailed it. Yep. And that, in addition to a lot of folks have reduced lunch breaks. So they don't really have time to sit and eat which is kind of ridiculous. So yep. I, I don't want to necessarily go down the road of stress culture. I could talk about, obviously, a lot more and how we could potentially restructure the work week, which that was an interesting TED Talk, proposing a four-day work week instead of a five-day work week. But again, back to the point of mental health, as you can imagine, stress has a huge impact, as you know, on your overall mental health. So if you break down what happens in the process of experiencing stress. And I'm going to get a little out and brown here in terms <laughs> okay. of brain chemistry. Right? You know, I'm sure, as some of our listeners may know, a certain hormone in particular gets released in your bloodstream. Do you know what that is when you're under stress? Oh, yeah. It's, um, oh, my gosh. I'm drawing a total blank, but I, yes, I know. I just can't think of it. Starts with a C. Yeah, I know. Oh my gosh, what is it? Cortisone? Cortisol? You got it. Cortisol. There it is. Cortisol. <laughs> yeah, so cortisol. No, and I'm not talking about that cream you put on no, the that's cut. cortisone, right. Yeah. Cortisol. <laughs> cortisol. It's a hormone. Cortisol does a number 
of different things in your body. So it increases your heart rate. Mm-hmm. It increases your sugar in your bloodstream, yep. which is basically food for your organs and your brain, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it also um, shuts off functions of what your brain deems to be non-essential functioning. So imagine, okay, so one of those, first of all, is suppresses digestion. So you can tie that to stomach issues when you're under stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, it shuts down your immune system. And then it shuts down what are referred to as reproductive or growth processes. So just sort of like the routine functioning of your, your body, like cell division and things like that. Your body's, your brain's like, hey, yo, 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 we need to conserve energy here because there's a threat. We're perceiving a threat. We need to deal with it. So cortisol is released. It's the f- classical fight or flight experience. The problem is when people are under stress, chronic stress, their brains are cranking out cortisol, and it's hard on your body. Right. So it can impact lifespan, obviously. But one of the other things that it impacts in terms of deemed non-essential functions is brain functioning. Your ability to, say, sit in front of, um, I don't know, a book and, and read through a book and comprehend it and absorb the content if you're under stress. You can't focus as well. Because your focus is limited. Yeah, that's why people say you get, like, people who are stressed out at work talk about brain fog a lot. And then it's very hard to, like, concentrate. Or, like, if they're multitasking, their things are falling through the cracks. And things get harder and harder to stay on top of. And I, yeah, I live that. Oh, totally. And yeah. another contributing factor, which is also impacted by stress, is your ability to get restful sleep. Yep. Which also can leave you in a fog when you're at work. Yep. All right. So, stress, bad. <laughs> okay. We know that. Uh, In terms of what is good for your brain, well, there's some things that I think most people would generally think of, maybe, perhaps. What would you think of if I thought, what are some good ways to help unwind and and de-stress? Good ways to unwind and de-stress? Well, I feel like, you know, walking, like being outdoors in nature is probably a good way to unwind and de-stress or, you know, sitting around listening to music, like something that's or meditating. I mean, that's so. I think just about everything you listed there could be classified as meditative. When you Mm -hmm. go out for a walk, you're focusing on walking. You're focusing on your breath. That's meditation. Mm -hmm. Listening to music, you're focusing on the music. Meditation. So yeah, meditation, yoga, deep breathing, relaxation techniques, making time for hobbies. (laughs) What's that? I said hot baths. Hot baths. Oh yeah, (laughs) I love them. Um, so these are some things to help you deal with stress. Obviously, some of the, the standard checklist is, you know, eating a good diet, getting enough sleep, seeking help when you need help, leaning on friends, relationship building. Mm -hmm. Those are all crucial elements to help manage stress and have a happy life. Sure. In addition to that, though, I wanted to kind of drill a little bit deeper again into the brain itself. Not literally. Well, actually... Kind of. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So it starts with understanding the mechanics, if you will, of the brain. Okay. So we we know about stress. We know about things to help de-stress. But what's actually happening inside your brain? It is a biomechanical system that's driven by electrical impulses that facilitate your thoughts and emotions. That's really, they go hand in hand. So I'm not 
taking a position, Eastern or Western medicine, does the thought precede the chemical reaction kind of thing? No, 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 no. But we know that they are, they are interconnected, right? So the impulse is connected with the emotional experience and the thoughts. Now, we can measure those brain waves, right? Mm-hmm. EEG, uh, electroencephalogram, yes. right? EEG. So, what's that? It's an EEG. Yes, an yeah. EEG. Yes. I got my EEG. So they literally put, <laughs> and I actually had this done recently, the, put a cap on your head with little electrodes that make their way through your hair. And then what they end up doing is squirting like, um, it's not KY jelly, <laughs> but it's like uh, medical uh, grade jelly, basically. Yes, it's the stuff they use for ultrasounds and stuff. Yes, yeah. exactly. Is It's nasty goop that you can't easily wash out of your hair. Yes. And what they do is they measure your brain waves. So they measure brain waves while you're con- like your eyes are open and then when your eyes are closed. And just in measuring that steady state, they get a baseline to see the different areas of your brain and the type of brain waves that are going on. So there are a classification of different types of brain waves. And I will break them down for you briefly here. One is delta, called delta. It's low frequency, so one to three hertz. And it has a, uh, a high amplitude, and this is the brain waves that you typically associate with resting when you're sleeping. Okay. There's what are called theta brain waves. Those are tied with sort of streaming consciousness, daydreaming type. Those are slightly higher frequency. And then you have alpha, which is reflective of a relaxed state. Those are from 8 to, eight to 12 hertz. Okay. And then you have the last two, which are beta. These are small and fast. These are what you tend to read when someone, a normal brain typically, is in sort of a focused state of concentration. Again, like maybe you're reading some text for work or you're, you're putting a puzzle together, you know, a concentrated task. And then finally, gamma, which gamma is sort of like the top of the pyramid in terms of consciousness. These are the fastest and smallest brain waves. And... Um, Again, these are really tied with uh, active consciousness and sharp concentration and memory. So there was a study done from researchers at the Wisconsin University. These aren't the only ones, but they were monitoring brain waves of Buddhist hmm. monks. Have you ever heard about this before? Mm-mm. Okay, so Buddhist monks are all about the meditation, right? Sure. And they tend to like be gods when it comes to reaching an elevated meditative state. But what's interesting, when they study these monks collectively using the same little helmet, right, Mm -hmm. they tend to see an observed increase in those gamma waves, being present, being conscious. And again, those are tied with higher levels functioning activities of the brain but not only do they have those more so than most average people they can sync theirs up with each other oh isn't that wacky okay that is wacky so it's almost like they're sharing the same consciousness Hmm. they're riding the same wave literally (laughs) riding the same wave Hmm. so i thought that's pretty hip and taking this approach from understanding brain waves, you know, this is something that we can easily measure, but also something we can actually influence. Clearly, Buddhist monks can do it. Granted, it takes a lot of time 
to invest in really achieving that meditative state, but what if I told you there are therapies out there that can kind of push you maybe not to being as as high level functioning as a Buddhist monk per se, but to help align you if you're misaligned with what would be considered a neurotypical brain pattern. Huh. You ever heard of anything no. like that before? No. No? <laughs> so you ever heard of neural feedback? Yes. Okay. What do you know about that? Uh I mean very little. A neurofeedback is basically like isn't it like how your brain perceives certain things or how you or your brain processes certain things? Like it's it's like kinda. You're you're kinda on the right track. So going back to what I was saying about this little helmet they put on you, they measure your brain waves in real time. And they can run a baseline compared to what would be considered a neurotypical brain pattern. Mm-hmm. So you'll see different brain waves in different regions of the brain. And what they can do, reading those in real time, they can provide feedback to you to kind of like act like bumpers or rails to kind of guide your brain uh, back waves. Back to where it's supposed to be. To Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Now, what's interesting is the way they do it. So I'm thinking neural feedback. The first thing that popped to my mind was, are they shooting like a laser beam into people's <laughs> eyeballs and right. sending energy waves into their neurocortex? No, it's a lot more simpler than that. So we know that human behavior is driven by incentive, right? Right. You do things because there's some motivation yeah, to do those you're things. You're going to get candy. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody wants a little candy. A <laughs> piece of candy. So one of the techniques that they use is giving you visual stimulation. So there's a couple different types, right? There's audible stimulation, physical, visual. So imagine like you're watching your favorite movie and... You really love watching this movie, and it's really hitting that pleasure center in your brain. But your brain waves aren't really reading the right way. So what if then that movie all of a sudden got maybe hazy? You couldn't make it out as much. And now you're just kind of like, oh, this sucks. I, I, I can't make out the show. So now your brain is being deprived of that treat. So then until your brain sort of automatically corrects itself then the screen, as feedback from this little helmet you're wearing, it will augment the visual stimulation to then give you the reward when it's reading the right brain waves. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Okay, that's crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. But one of the things that's interesting about this, again, it's, it's not a talk therapy. It's simply something you go in and you're just using bio, I guess, mechanical feedback to help correct your brain patterns, which should in turn kind of steer the car back on the road, sort of say. Okay. And it's been used effectively to deal with things like uh, people who've experienced brain trauma from car crashes or even depression, uh, some of the obsessive behaviors that are associated with Asperger's. So there's a plethora like of... OCDs? Y- yeah. No, that's what I'm asking, like OCDs? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I thought that was really kind of cool. And the, the last thing I was going to mention uh, as one of these sort of atypical therapies 
just to kind of broaden people's horizon here a little bit, because maybe you haven't heard of them, there's another thing called TMS. Do you know what TMS stands for? I do not. <laughs> TMS stands for Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation. Okay, no, that, that doesn't sound like anything I want to know about. I know. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to know about transcranial anything. It, it sounds like me. like the first thing that comes to mind is. I don't know. You're gonna like shock zap, Yeah, you're gonna zap my brain with something Kapow, trans, transcranially. Right? Yeah, no, it does Please sound like shock therapy, alone. but it, it's not. So shock okay. therapy is definitely a thing, and it's actually still used. Yeah, don't get me started about that. But it me out. in a more controlled way than they used to do in the old days but still they gotta like give you sedatives and stuff for that right but this that you're talking about is not shock therapy what is it It, so cranstrenal stimulation it's something that's been around for a while and if you YouTube some videos on it it's basically this little device that generates uh, electromagnetic field and depending on where in terms of proximity and location in your head can impact those those brain waves that, like we were talking about i mean your brain there there are electric signals happening in your brain they're going to be subjective to an electromagnetic field so what this does is it sends little pulses and they'll control it to a point where it it doesn't say generate an automatic physical response like sending a shock down your arm but in a way to help, again, kind of curb your, your brain waves a little bit. And I've seen it being used for people in addition to things like depression, but also stroke and rehabilitation. Hmm. So, again, it's non-invasive. It's not painful. They don't need sedatives for it or any pain medication. They literally just hold this electrode to your head, and it just sends these little um, EMF pulses. So I just thought it was just kind of interesting because, again, Western medicine is so focused on i gotta make a pill yeah right to treat it and what we were talking about with alzheimer's again it was it's it's a a therapy uh, a, a drug that you're taking to yeah. um impact you you know chemically and i i kind of like this approach it's less invasive it is but with alzheimer's that we're talking about plaques we're talking about things in the brain and 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 tangled Nestles of you know right, but signals. The other thing to consider though too is could that also be somehow connected to brain waves to the you know the, yeah, the energy true. patterns in your yeah, brain? Yeah, okay. Could, or or could you vice versa? Could you influence those brain patterns? Because I would imagine the brain patterns of someone who's developing Alzheimer's would be different. Yeah. Oh, could yeah. you potentially influence them? I don't know. Food for thought. I just thought it was kind of an interesting <laughs> no, it's, topic. No, that's a very interesting topic. I learned a lot of things I had no idea about. So brains. thank you so very much. for that. Yes, about brains. I did not know. <laughs> now I know. Um, if you have some thoughts about brains or anything else that maybe you want us to feature on here, please give us a shout at uh, by email at whatdoyouknowgtown at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at what do you know about that. We'd love to hear from you. Right now, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back with our favorite segment, Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood? You're listening to 92.9 FM G-Town Radio. 
Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. It's time for my favorite segment, Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood? And we are joined today in studio by Greg Mervine from the West Philly Orchestra. West Philly Orchestra, yeah. (laughs) Hello. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for being here. Sure. So um, start by giving us a little, like, you know, background. Who are you? How, how, how did you get here? Um, what makes you like well, music? Well, he drove here. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean, so, musically speaking. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm from the Philly area. I came to Philly to study uh, jazz at, at uh, University of the Arts. I ended up at Temple doing other stuff. And then um, I, I was I got involved in playing klezmer music. That was like my first gateway into the world of like Eastern European folk music. Um, so I started playing in this band. Uh, I was based in Princeton called uh, the Klez Dispensers, which uh, despite our, our, that, our, our name. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> it, it was kind of a curse. But it was a really great band um, of some like really great musicians. And then as they, uh, as you know, we all just grew into our careers in music. Uh, a lot of them went to New York. And so I kind of, I always stayed in Philly, but I was very much involved in like the New York scene. And in New York in the time, like 2005, um, there were a lot of groups um, and a lot of klezmer musicians who were kind of discovering other styles and like related styles to klezmer of, of Eastern European folk music, uh, including like Balkan music. Um, and, and there's a whole, there's so many different styles that are kind of involved and all these bands doing different things. But um, I really liked the music. I got called a lot to go and play with these groups and sub with these groups. And I said, this is so much fun, but I don't like the Turnpike. <laughs> uh, so uh, so maybe I can just get a band here in Philly because no one was doing anything like, like like what was happening in New York. So I was like, well, we could do something like that here. And so I had some friends um, in, in West Philly, uh, pretty much around the Fume Bar at 45th and Locust. So it was like people that I just hung out with on a nightly basis. And there was a Hungarian guy who was a, a neuroscience uh, postdoc at Penn. And he's like, I used to play the violin. I'm like, you want to join a band? Sure. <laughs> you know, we just kind of picked up people. Um, the early days, there was a lot of a lot of people coming and going. Um, but by like 2008, we were basically what we, you know, in the current formation. Um, although we did have a lot of string players, but now, but we became a brass band at some point. Uh, the string players moved away, and no one wanted to s- swap in. So, yeah. So that's kind of how the band came together, um, and it was, you know. Basically, me being very inspired by, you know, other groups and, and like kind of wishing, you know, I play with all these different groups and I say, I like how they do this. I like how this group does this. And, but I wish everyone else played with this beat. So, you know, it kind of became my mashup version of what I was hearing and experiencing up there. So, very cool. Where, where did West, the name West Philly Orchestra, come from? How'd you come up with that one? <laughs> we were, um, we were on a gig and we had another name, which I shouldn't say <laughs> we, we didn't actually didn't really have it inappropriate for but radio. we were we were about to like be announced and and the violist of the band jacob's like we can't we can't call ourselves that and i was like uh, well what do we got we had like so we were just so someone said like we're like well i mean that's actually a tradition um a, a lot of the bands that we were listening to they just named themselves after their town right so we were like oh so we'll be the philadelphia orchestra great we're like no but there's already one of those <laughs> so we're like oh yeah West Philadelphia Orchestra, and then that was basically the the conversation. So, nice. yeah, so <laughs> I like it. And you guys have kind of had a pretty illustrious career since, right? I mean, yeah. Not only, I mean, we've seen you play 
at Attic a number of times here in the neighborhood. But beyond that, you guys are actively playing out, and you also, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you you also work with Johnny Showcase. Is that correct? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. We, we've done, um, I mean, we have, like this ongoing New Year's Eve collaboration. Okay. Uh, which I think is going to happen again this year. We're, we're, it seems pretty pretty much certain. So we've been playing at Underground Arts together on New Year's Eve. Nice. Um, and uh, for uh, many years now. And we usually end up picking a few songs to kind of pull together. Um, and we've been working recently with uh, Rumi Kitchen, with yes. Johnny's spiritual advisor. Yep. Um, so uh, he's been enlightening us, and we've been we we've worked out a trilogy, which is um, it is finished. We just kind of finished it a few weeks ago, so that should be coming out soon. Nice. So you know we're all here in the neighborhood with the Germantown scene. We're really like more Germantown based these days, but um, but yeah, you know yeah we uh, working on some new stuff. So right. Yeah, Very anybody cool. I've ever mentioned um, you all to knows exactly who you are. <laughs> like okay. anybody, I'd be like, oh, and I went and saw, and they're like, oh, yeah, I try to catch them whenever I can. I'm like, oh, okay, wow, like cool. I, you have quite a week, and I've got friends kind of all over the city and some mm-hmm. outside the city who are like, yeah, we've been around for a while. We've, yeah, you know, we 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 just, I mean, we really wanted to just play as much as possible. Um, first of all, like just to be in the community, you know, it was like mm-hmm. that was like our idea. It was like, all right, we're we want to be this village band and we were very inspired, like not just by music, but also by like the idea of like, what's a folk orchestra? Um, what's a folk ensemble? Who do we play for? Um, how is it organized? And the fact that, I mean, there's, there's a lot of um, community events happening, popping up. And it was just like, yeah, there's a, a puppet theater and they want music. Yeah, we'll be there. And there's some kind of opening of, you know, a new shop. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, we'll, we'll check it out. You know, so it was very much just like trying to also like conceptualize music in a, a different way, you know, that wasn't the, the same. I mean, we're, we're not like, um, I just think about like, I mean, everyone was starting to go online and, and we were just like, uh, I'm not sure online is really the way to go. We want to be on the streets, you know? Um, and so, I mean, I guess we're online now, but you know, but you know, but, but that was kind of the idea. It was like, how do we just think about this differently? How do we just like be a part of the community first? That's like our yeah. first priority. Um, and, and if, we're going to travel and go on tour or make records. That'll be like secondary, but let's just like make sure that we're on the streets, local and, and connecting with neighbors and being a part of that, of our community. That's know? very cool. So in, in that pursuit then have, have you experienced that you guys have gotten a lot of work just, just simply from word of mouth? Yeah. 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 I mean like, um, I mean, we, we, we don't, I mean, we, we get call we, we get calls a lot for things. I mean, we, we do play. I mean, we a lot of the music we play is, is wedding music, right? I mean, it's like cel- I mean that's why it's so celebratory because yeah. it's music that was conceived and and like honed at weddings and and you know so um, so but we never we never like put like an ad like you know for, have, for wedding. Have you work. guys actually played a lot of weddings? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We, yeah, we we've been doing quite a bit uh, every year. Um, They're great those, paying gigs. Yeah, coming up two weeks will be yeah yeah so i mean yeah that's that's i mean it's it makes sense that's we we play this music and it's like that's the reason for it i really like um the diversity of crowd like age wise mm-hmm. every time i've seen you all i've seen literally across the board from the oldest people in our neighborhood to the youngest children in our neighborhood and i'm right. like that's yeah. always to me like so i would rather see 
music like that that speaks to just all the ages then yeah. end up being like am i too old for this concert like you know what i mean Where right, I'm like, I'm right. like, no that's never going to be the question here because you're never too old or too young to see you all it's, oh it's it's, really... it's very rhythmically driven speaking yeah. of which so you're you're the percussionist of the project uh, well there's there's currently three of us what? there's three percussionists yeah we kind of um so yeah we we in, in traditional Balkan percussion, there'll be um, an instrument called tapan, which looks like a bass drum, but one side's really deep and the other side is this high thwack, really piercing high pitch sound, which really mm. sounds like a snare drum crack. Um, so we get, you know, we have that drum, um, that's one of the players, and then another person will be on percussion doing snare drum. Um, we use rototoms, maybe playing darbuka if we have if it's uh, like a hand drum, but you really have to hit hard to like mm-hmm. cut. If, you, if there's a microphone, it's okay. <laughs> you really yeah, it'll kill your fingers. Um, and then um, yeah, and then we and then we have like a like an auxiliary percussion, like um, a lot of like the effects, the colors, the tambourines, cymbals, yes. stuff like that. Um, and S- then the sprinkles. And sometimes we use drum set too. Like if we're like playing in a rock venue, we kind of discovered like the hard way. That's like. Yeah, if you're going to play a rock venue, you should have a drum set because the sound engineer knows what to do with a, a kick drum. They know how to make that sound good. And um, Whereas like some of the other instruments we play are pretty non-traditional and, and we've had, you know. Non-rock so native instruments are... Yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, we don't have a guitar, we don't have a bass, we have like a tuba, like everything is like a little bit different. So anyhow, when we, we, we you know, if we play like a big stage show, um, I'll usually switch to drum set just to kind of... Make sure everything's really grounded and and, uh, and I definitely noticed it made it a huge difference the last time we saw you at it because you were playing a drum set and I was mm-hmm. like wow this sounds different mm-hmm. it just it makes it punchier for sure right yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's really fun I man I don't play like a real like a full drum set I have like rototoms which is I don't have like a ride cymbal like the rototoms and uh, or kind of like the ride cymbal but I can play all kinds of like counter rhythms on those and um, and we kind of do a hybrid of I mean, obviously, like, we want people in Philadelphia to dance to this music. So it's like we, we need to, we kind of, like, modify the rhythms to put, like, a little bit of, like, a local color on them. So it's like, yeah, so this this now feels, you know, a, a little bit more recognizable. <laughs> so, you know, somebody hit, like, I probably play, I probably hit the backbeats harder than, than uh, someone might, you know, a, a Bulgarian drummer might if they were playing the music. Um, I mean, this is but, Philly. Yeah. yeah, but but also, I mean, if you listen to like the modern Serbian and the modern Balkan bands, they're now like they're like very techno influenced, very funk influenced as well. So you know, it, I mean, the music is always morphing and changing, and yep. uh, and that's it's kind of cool to see, you know, those different approaches um, and and those different styles coming together. So. Well, speaking of the morphing and changing, you talked about how the initial conception of the project you had primarily string instruments and then mm. it slowly morphed into all brass right right it's predominantly brass at this point yeah with yeah. except except percussion so can you tell me just give me a breakdown of the lineup and um you know if there's any particular individuals you want to highlight within the group because i know a lot of these other musicians you know they're tied into other projects as well right right yeah okay so um so the way like a Balk and brass orchestras organized. You have a percussion section, uh, you have lower brass section, and then you have a melody section. Um, so um, I guess like our melody section, we have trumpet players. Um, uh, there's uh, right now we have Daniel Stern, uh, Don Webster, and Adam Hirschberger, mm-hmm. uh, who are the three main trumpet players. Um, and then we have a reed section, uh, which a lot of the 
strictly brass bands in Serbia, like no, and they wouldn't necessarily have three reeds. We have well, we have clarinet, alto saxophone, and tenor sax. Uh, so we have uh, Larry Goldfinger on clarinet, David Fishkin is the alto player, and Elliot Levin plays um, primarily tenor sax and and some flute as well. So um, and it's pretty cool to have you know I mean all those different personalities. Like each of those players has their unique thing. I think like um, you know Daniel Stern on trumpet, on trumpet is probably the most uh, he's his background is almost on trumpet is almost only Balkan music. So, and he learned uh, with some groups in New York. So his style is, is probably like the truest to like the original Balkan sound. And then on the other side of that, we have like Elliot uh, Levin on, on saxophone who comes from like a free jazz perspective. And he's like a freaking veteran from the, the Philly yeah. scene. He's been around for a while. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, Elliot's like a very, a very special uh, musician and, and kind of like kind of belongs to, like this other era like in in the in his style and his like his conception of music really comes from uh like the 1960s avant-garde yep. um and and so and that's just really really cool to have in there and it makes us you know i mean his his flavor his sound um you know david fishkin on saxophone he also i think he's been greatly influenced by Elliot, right? As you mm-hmm. know, as like different generations of players, and we've also had like you mentioned intergenerations before. Like we, we've we've always had you know people who are you know in their early twenties and folks who are in their sixties. Like everyone in the band together, people from different backgrounds and all. That's super um, great. Different like we have classical players, jazz players, you know, more folk players. So how many total then in the project? Oh, um, I don't know. 14 people right now are in the group wow. but it's like but it's it's like kind of like a community right we yeah. really have everybody because so many people are busy right people play with a lot of different groups um so yeah it's it's you know you might see us usually like six is the smallest we will have mm-hmm. um that's like our pocket size ensemble um which fits better into a lot of rooms than 12 people right sure <laughs> uh, but we have everything covered so we we you know um but when we can you know we we have the the fuller ensemble well, tell us a little bit about this song that you're going to play for us today. Okay. So we have a, a song called Double Doink Dabki. And uh, the, the titles of the songs, I mean, it's an instrumental, so you can kind of call it whatever. And a lot of times I have just like working titles that end up being the titles. <laughs> Anyhow, so I think, I think this, this came right, this came like shortly, I think I probably wrote it in like February. It was like shortly after, I think it was like an Eagles game and they, um, there was a, a, a the sh- I think it was a, against the Bears and the Bears like they the, the they tried to like kick this game winning field goal and it hit the post not once but twice and so it was double it became known as the double doink <laughs> so, so I th- I think I'm kind of done with sports references but there there continue to be uh, you know little little I mean I don't know if, if many people remember the, oh, what oh, the double no, doink is no, that's but. great that's great <laughs> so like um, but it's a dabki which is uh, it's it's actually like a uh, a Lebanese dance, um, um, as as I know it, and then there's like some great Lebanese bands. Uh, there's the the middle the Middle East ensemble with the Tayun brothers here okay. in Philadelphia, and um, so I, I I I was playing with them a little bit, and and uh, and we were doing some shows together at Frankie mm-hmm. Bradley's. So anyhow, it was kind of like kind of feeling some of the rhythms that we were playing together. So anyhow, so this is uh, a tune that uh, I composed. It it's. Um, you know, I think it actually was originally written for like, you know, like, like almost like a synth kind of sound, uh, but we ended up doing a brass band version of it. So West Philly Orchestra, double doink. Dabki. Dabki. Yeah. All right, let's take a listen. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that that's some real tight John right there. <laughs> that tune is some serious hip shaking action. So talk to us about where we can see you all. What's what's coming up? You got got any places we can uh, yeah. pop out so, and catch you? I mean, like, yeah, let's look at the schedule here. Um, we're we're fairly we're fairly busy this fall. Um, we will be at um, Pentridge Station. Do you know this place, Pentridge? It's um it's like 50th and King Sessing in West Philly. It's a really cool spot. Um, operate I believe by like the Dalak people. Mm. Um, and it's like an outdoor bar, but it's all ages. Um, uh, and there's games for kids like Giant Jenga. Like it's great. Awesome. Uh, there's like a school bus where you can like hang out in, and it's a very cool spot. It's and it's kind of under the radar. Um, but definitely somewhere to check out. And they have a lot of great events there. So we'll be there on um, Sunday, October 2nd. Nice. And we'll have uh, um, uh, Sing Slavic, which is a, a, a choir. We'll be doing a set, Ooh. and there's a special guest. But I can't say who. But okay. anyhow. <laughs> nice. Come on out to find out who yeah, the special yeah. guest is. And then we're doing, like, we'll be, um, there's an event at the Cherry Street Pier on October 1st that we're doing. Um that will be um, it's a it's JJ Tizu um, does this this walk around Philadelphia series. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a it's related to his his walk around Philly event. So cool. That's at nine o'clock. Yeah. So and there's there's Great. more, but that's enough. Right. And where can we find um, your music? Y'all have social or yeah yeah. I mean so I mean like the the tracks are always on the streamings. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Bandcamp. Um, we uh at instagram it's like wpo brass we've been putting some we're not great with putting announcements on there but (laughs) there's usually something posted about each show you know (laughs) yeah hopefully yeah cool great well thank you so much for taking time to sit down with us tonight and and share the stories and the song that's fantastic yes we 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 love west philly orchestra yeah we we will awesome definitely be popping up and seeing you this fall someplace (laughs) keep doing what you're doing and thank you (laughs) sure thanks for having us awesome well thanks so much for listening everybody it's been a great episode we we learned about some water collecting gamma rays and we (laughs) talked about stuff going on in the neighborhood and then brains that was awesome and And then west philly orchestra and then west philly orchestra like i this is this is a great what could you ask for people Thanks so much for being with us. Have a great rest of your Thursday and a fabulous weekend. And tune in in two weeks. We'll be back to talk about something else. Have a great evening, everyone.